0: glad to give you one. Take your hand out. Everybody got one? Wave it. Right, put it at John chapter 20, if you haven't done that already. John chapter 20. And then take your Bibles and open to Luke 24. I'm not, I know you're thinking, just trust me. We're going to start in Luke 24, then we'll jump over to John chapter 20. If you will do that, I would greatly appreciate it. Anybody awake? Can't wait till tonight, 740, right? Some of you are excited about that. I know Tennessee plays. Five. So after they lose, then the Tigers have their opportunity. See what happens. And then Kentucky plays what time? Nobody knows. It's good. They play at 1.30, and we will all be in prayer. Chitah State to their winning streak. And it's kind of cool to see a team's whatever they are. 30 is that what it is? Kind of fun to what happened. Thirty five and no No, it's kinda cool to watch it, especially a basketball fan and love to watch. It was fun to watch team like Dayton, Ohio State, team like play, players you never heard of it. and just suddenly, it's suddenly like Cal Poly wins a game. Oh Cal Poly, I thought you playing with slide rule. Anybody use slide rule? I couldn't use one when they had them. All right, you'll turn to Luke chapter 24. We're going to wrap up our series this week on nicknames. You'll notice at the top of your handout, who, whose nickname are we doing today? Thomas' name was Didymus. That's a great Bible name. Next person to have a child in our congregation, and there are many of you who will have them, Didymus, a great name. And if you're not going to go with Rand to go with Didymus, or put them together, Andy Didymus. But that's his name, and his name also means twin. Apparently, he had a twin. But his nickname throughout history has become what? Doubting Thomas, we've been looking at different nicknames and how people got their nicknames, like Jesus gave nicknames to some and others, uh, John gave himself a nickname. But Doubting Thomas, where did he get his nickname from? Anybody know? We gave it to him. Down through history, people have been, when your, your dad or your mom or somebody would turn to you and say, don't be a... Doubting Thomas. You gotta trust me. Uh, Jesus didn't give him the name D- Doubting Thomas. No one else gave him the nickname Doubting Thomas. It just kind of became part of our culture. That's what we're gonna look at today. But I do think, in fairness, he's kind of gotten a raw deal. Not completely, but somewhat. I want us to look at Doubting Thomas today as we wrap up our series on nicknames. And as we do this, we're going to lead into today, over the next five weeks, beginning to look at Easter, that first Resurrection Sunday, and what it really means to us what it really means to us. I read a great article this week. I'll share with you over the next few weeks, bits and pieces of it. And the title of the article is, Don't All Religions Lead to Heaven? And as Christians, we know that Jesus said, I'm the only way a man can know God. I'm the only way you can know the Father. I'm the only way you will get to heaven. We understand that. That's what we believe. We follow Jesus Christ. As he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And C.S. Lewis said, he's either Lord of all or he's a liar or a lunatic on the scale of a poached egg so he either is he said he was or he's another charlatan or he's crazy well we as christians believe that jesus was the lord of the universe who stepped into space and time became one of us took on our sin debt died in our place rose from the dead that we might have eternal life we might have life So we're going to begin to look at that over the next five weeks, the significance of the fact Jesus rose from the dead, what it means to us. And we're going to kind of focus on that today as we wrap up our nickname series and transitioning into looking at Jesus' empty tomb. Rick Warren, in his famous book about the purpose-driven life and the purpose-driven church, asked this question. He said, what is the purpose of the church? And he did a survey. So I'm going to ask you a question. What's the purpose of the church? If you'd like to answer that, be brave, raise your hand. Don't shout it out. If you have to shout it out so nobody will know, you punch the person. I can't believe you said that. What's the purpose of the church? What? Make disciples. Nice. That's a good answer. Also a great commission. Anybody else got an answer? That's it. Worship, serve, fellowship. If If you had to narrow it down and say, what is the purpose of the church? Jesus Christ said, go into all the world and... Make disciples, which means learner, followers of me, of me, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Teach them. So Rick Warren asked that question. What's the purpose of the church? 89% of the respondents said this purpose of the church, quote, to take care of me and my family. I've literally had people that I'm very close to say to me, that's what church is all about. Take care of my family, meet my needs, do what I need to do. Now, that should take place as a church, as a body. We take care of one another, meet one another, and take care of one another. That's not why the church is here. 11% responded to win the world for Christ. Yes, that's right. The 11%. That's why we're here. Now, I want you to think about Doubting Thomas and the context. Turn to Luke 24, if you haven't already, verse 10. We're looking at the day Jesus rose from the dead, that first resurrection Sunday. And we're going to look at that night, that first Sunday night. They are gathered together as his disciples, and Jesus is going to appear to them. And remember, this is the day he rose from the dead, his very first appearance to them as a group. Look at chapter 24 of Luke, verse 10. By the way, Luke makes it clear, and this is how you put all the gospels together, you get a harmony of the gospels. Luke wrote in a consecutive historical narrative. So his is definitely in order, and then the others fit in like John jumped around like a crazy man and wrote things because he was a, a he basically wrote his this is an evangelist treatise that is God. So, but but Luke was wrote an historical narrative account. So it's in order. But you get to Luke 24, verse 10. Remember, this is the day Jesus rose from the dead. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So they've gone, they've seen, and now they go and they tell the apostles. Drop down to verse 33. Same chapter, verse 33. So they rose up that very hour. Now there's this group, there's these two people, or at least two, on the Emmaus road, these disciples. Jesus meets them, and now they go, verse 33. They rose up that very hour, and they returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them that were gathered together. Now notice it's not just the eleven. see that? probably Mary and those women and some others that we don't know exactly who's there but you've got at least the 11 and some other people probably more followers and now you've got these Emmaus disciples who have also seen Jesus verse 34 they said the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon so Jesus has at least appeared to Peter and he told them about the things that had happened on the road on the road to Emmaus met Jesus how he was known to them in the breaking of bread as they said these things remember it's the night he rose from the dead this is their first time together Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and he said to them peace to you they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit please don't miss that they're terrified they're frightened and they think they're seeing a ghost you see that okay hang with me Jesus said to them why are you troubled why do doubts arise in your hearts please look at that verse doubts plural arise in your hearts plural you see that raise your hand is it just Thomas that's doubting no, it's all of them. They think they're looking at a ghost and they have doubts. By the way, if you were in their shoes, what might you be thinking? I'm looking at a ghost and they have doubts. It's normal. They not perfect. Behold, notice what he says verse 39. Behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself handle me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So he says, "Here my feet." Why why specifically mention these? Marks of fiction. Said, I want you to see I am not a ghost. Here, come, touch me. When he had said this he showed them his hands and his feet. While they but while they still did not believe, for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of, piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took and he ate in their presence. He ate in their presence. He said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you when I was still with you, that all things must be ful- fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. In other words, all the scripture that you as Jews believe, I kept telling you, this is the fulfillment of this, the prophetic this is what's going to happen. I am not a ghost. Here you can touch me, I will eat. I am physically risen from the dead. You're not hallucinating you're not it's not the power of suggestion you're not seeing a ghost it is me here touch feel watch me eat this food it's not a ghost I am back from the dead He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Go back to the Psalms. Go back to the prophets. Go back to the books of Moses. Like he had done with the the disciples on the Emmaus Road, who are in the room, by the way. He said, let's open those scriptures. Let me show you. This is about me. This is about me. This is about me. The serpent in the wilderness. That's me being lifted up on the cross. On and on and on. All those things you read about in the Old Testament, we call it, were types, pictures of Christ. He gives them this incredible Bible study. Today, he ought to put that on DVD. It'd be tremendous. He said to them, thus it is written, thus it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. From the Old Testament scriptures, pointing this out to them, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, Great Commission. This is the purpose of church. Begin here, where you are, go out and take the message of repentance and remission of sins, the gospel to all nations, the Gentiles. And you are witnesses of these things. You've seen it, seen me, saw me killed. Now see me risen from the dead in fulfillment of scripture. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high or the Holy Spirit. Now go to John chapter 20, John chapter 20, same account. Let's look at it here. John chapter 20, we'll start in verse 19. First thing I want you to notice, we've mentioned it already, but first thing I want you to see is the disciples' problem. Number one on your handout, what's their problem? First thing is, their problem is fear. Verse 19, what we've just seen now, look at verse 19. That same day at evening, the day he rose from the dead, that same day at evening being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, why are the doors shut? For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood in the midst of them and he said, peace be with you or peace to you. Verse 26, if you'll drop down to there for a moment. This is a week later. This is a week later. Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside. Again inside, the door shut. Thomas is with them. This time, Jesus came, doors being shut, stood in the midst, and said, peace to you. First thing I want you to notice is they're afraid. Now, look up here for a moment. What are they afraid of? If you were in their shoes, what would you be afraid of? Okay, maybe that it's not true. Anything else? What would you literally be afraid of if you were in their shoes? what? You're next. They took Jesus, look what they did to him. We're his followers. Some of us were his closest associates. We've talked about Peter denying him, and all, where they all were worthy when Jesus needed them. Now they're they're together. They're behind closed doors. They're afraid specifically of the Jews. That means the Pharisees and the leaders. They're afraid they're going to do the same thing to us they did to Jesus. Matter of fact, one of the things Jesus said to them when he was with them, he said, come follow me. And then he said, John chapter six, you read about it, like verse six, very powerful passage. He said, if you want to follow, follow me, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. In other words, it can't be about you, pick up your cross. What did a cross mean? What did they do on crosses? They crucified people like they were going to do to Jesus. So if you're going to follow me, it cannot be about you. Pick up your cross. Come on, we're going to go die, and you can follow me. In John 6, 6, from that point, many of them followed him no more. In other words, when the rubber met the road, where'd they go? They went the other way. We've already seen how they denied him the very night he needed him the most. Now, they're together. He's risen from the dead. Remember, it It was this past Friday. Hadn't been that long. They're afraid. They are terrified. The idea is, and I really believe this is what was going on, they're afraid of the Jews. And I think they've gotten together. What do we do now? You see in the next chapter, go back fishing. I think they're trying to figure out, how can we sneak out of town? How can we get back in society and not die? Jesus did. We gave up everything to follow him. He's dead. It's over. They're afraid. The second problem is, do have doubt. Look at verse 25. Talking to Thomas is a week later. The other disciples therefore said to him, we've seen the Lord. He said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails with my finger into the print of the nails with my hand into his side, I will not believe. The Greek here is they insisted to Thomas over and over again. Persistently. We've seen Jesus. He's alive. We saw him a week ago. We know you weren't there, but we're telling you he's alive. They insisted. If you go back, and we're not going to do this, if you go back through the uh, Gospel of John, you'll see that Thomas was not a coward. Matter of fact, in John chapter 11, Thomas said, all right, let's follow Jesus to Jerusalem and die with him. He said, let's follow him to death. He was not a coward. And I really think what you see is that he was seeking truth. John 14, 5. I just quoted earlier John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. John 14, 5. Thomas is the one who voiced what everybody else was thinking. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know the way. How do we know? And that's what he said, I am the way. I think Thomas was seeking truth. Now, keep that in your mind as we go forward. Here's why. God wants honest, sincere doubt where you go and you ask honest questions like, how do I know there's a God? You examine the evidence. How do I know Jesus is the answer? And you see the evidence and you believe the truth. That's a good thing. What God doesn't want is unbelief based on stubborn, hard heart. We see the evidence, say, no, I still choose. I still choose. Reject. I literally was witnessing to my older brother several years ago. And we were talking about the ultimate apologetic is defense of the faith. Where did you come from? If you don't believe the Bible, you don't believe Jesus. So then the the obvious question, where did you come from? Well, he said he believed in evolution. We started talking about evolution for a while. Hey, it was a captive audience. We were driving up to my aunt in Henderson in my car. So we for an hour and a half, to me. All of you would love to do that. Yeah. So we're talking about it for an hour and a half. And I convinced him by the time we got to Henderson that evolution was stupid and didn't make sense. So my question is, my next logical question is, okay, Ricky, if evolution doesn't make sense, where did you come from? He said, how oh, you going to tell me God created me? I said, you got an alternative. Where did you come from? they find you in a big egg? Buried out in a field somewhere? Did aliens do it? Where did you come from? And then you proceed. And ultimately, even though you presented with the truth, he was saying, I think Hussein might be. And I remember after my dad, he came to me. I had done my mom's and my dad's. And I really understand how important this is. He said, I just... Now that's hard, that's hard, hard. That's true. That's stubborn unbelief. That's what God will attribute a man. Thomas is seeking truth, not necessarily. You don't lay out fleeces, but let's hang on. All right, look at Jesus' answer, verse nineteen. Jesus' answer. Same day, first day, door, doors open, and the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Jesus came, he stood in their midst, and he said, "Peace be with you." Here's what I want you to notice first, verse twenty-six. After eight days, again, they a time Jesus came and he said, "Peace to you." He says it to them three times. Jesus comes to them. After eight days, the first time, first day of the week, they're meeting Sunday. One thing I want you to notice, Jesus rose from the dead. It was on a Sunday. Did they start meeting? they have been meeting their whole lives. What day? Saturday. Now what day they meet? Sunday. It was really important to them, even though they had a lot to learn. Jesus came. First thing I want you to notice is he came to them. He came to them. Please pause for a moment and reflect on that. He came to them. He didn't wait for them to get their act together. Where was their act three days ago when he needed them the most? They couldn't stay awake. They weren't there for him. They were denying him. They were cursing him. At least we know for sure Peter was. The rest of them weren't around. But we have seen he's the God of reconciliation, the God of restoration, them. He comes to you. The Bible knocks, draws self. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? That God loves you. His spirit vix. God draws. God saves. He didn't wait for your act to get your way. He loves you. Right you are. It's you. Jesus came to them. When they needed him the most, he was there. Another thing I want you to notice, beautiful phrase. He stood in their midst. Now, if you will allow me a little Bible license for a moment. I don't think it's an act God chose phrase, that he stood in their midst. So I ran this phrase through the Bible. And if you go back into Exodus, the Bible says God is in the midst of the earth. If you go to Deuteronomy, it says God's in the midst camp to deliver. If you go to Jeremiah, it says God is in the midst of us. In Daniel, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, I love it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in there and he says, I forth the midst. And he looks like a son of God. He was in the fire with them, in the midst of the fire with them. By the way, when they take them out of that fire, the Bible smell like smoke. Not only were they not burnt, they didn't even smell like smoke. The only thing that was burnt on the ropes were holding. That's what God does. He said, and if you're in a fire, he's with you. That's where God is. In Matthew, the Bible says, two or three are gathered together, I'm in the midst at Calvary, you had thief here, thief here, and who's in their midst? He died in the thief. In Revelation, the Bible said, midst, throne of God, and he's in the midst of churches. When these people, his disciples, who were going to fulfill his great commission, on the day he rose from the dead, that night, they're assembled in a room. They're terrified. They're afraid of the Jews. And a week later, they're still terrified. They're still afraid of the Jews. And Jesus comes, and where does he stand? Right in the middle of their fear and their doubt. And what does He say? Peace. Talk about that just a moment. Peace to you. Second thing he does, he not only comes to them, he comforts them. Look at verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Verse 27, he said to Thomas a week later, reach your finger here, look at my hands, reach your hand here, put it in my side, do not be unbelieving, but believing. He knew what Thomas was thinking, he was omniscient. He knew what Thomas had voiced, He's omniscient. So he says to Thomas, I'll meet you right where you are. Here, touch, feel, I know belief. Back to that in a moment. So he comforts him by saying, look, we saw in Luke, he even eats with him. I want you to see. It's not a ghost. You're not crazy. It's not hypnosis. I'm alive. The very thing I told you I would do, I did. Destroy this body and in three days I will raise it up. Remember I told you I would meet you at Galilee. I'm here now in Judea. I'm here. and It will be. He saw last week him at Galilee. I'm not a ghost. He conquers their fear and doubt. He comforts. But I want you to notice verse 21. Now he commissions them. This is John's version of the Great Commission, verse twenty-one. Jesus said to them again, "Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you." When he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, "Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained." You don't have time to get into all of this, and they're not—they're not—they don't have the capacity to give sins. Not what he's talking about. Only God can forgive sins. What he's saying to them is, this is the Great Commission. As God sent me to come and bring the good news, to die, to deliver mankind, I am sending you out to share that good news with the world and to tell them their sins can be forgiven. 2,000 years later, that has not changed. That's why we exist, to go into the world, to look people in the eye and say to them, Jesus died for you, rose from the dead. You can be forgiven of your sins. And you can have peace. You can have a new life. You can have each because Jesus came. He commissioned to go out. He gives them the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives them a purpose to share the gospel. He gives them the power of the Holy Spirit. And he gives them an incredible privilege to proclaim the truth. This is how a man could give Every human being has problems. You could share with them. The truth will set free. That's what he told them in that room. And that's what he's telling today. That's the message of Easter. That Jesus rose from the... And that every person know he died for them. They know life right now. But he calms them. That's the next point. He just says three times, peace to you, peace to you, peace to you. Now, I realize what he says to them, he literally says to them, is shalom. The traditional Jewish greeting to each other. Peace to you. It means all things good to you. But beyond that, there's more here. Yes, it's a traditional Jewish greeting. But remember, this is the day he rose from the dead. They are terrified. They're confused. They're embarrassed. They're guilty. And his first words to them are what? Where were you when I needed you? What the heck is wrong with you? You're worthless, his first word, peace. Yes, it's traditional Jewish greeting, but also what he's saying to them, okay, let's be reconciled, because he just commissioned, right? He is going to go out and share the good news about himself. Just like we see 21, he publicly stored Peter. He's doing here is saying to all of them, to you, peace to you. In John 16, 33, in John 16:33, Jesus' last time with the 11 in the upper room discourse, the last thing Jesus said to them before they left, they headed out of the upper room last thing he said to them as he before he starts praying to the Father is peace, about peace. And now they see him again. The next says to them, peace, peace to you. Here's what he's saying. I've risen from the dead. I've conquered death. I've conquered hell. There is no victory for Satan. I won. I died. I was buried. I rose again. And I'm here. Peace to you. Now here's what I want you to look at. Look at number three in your outline. In just a moment, I want us to look at Jesus' peace. I want you to notice John 14, 27. Look at it with me for just a moment. In that same discourse, that upper room discourse, the last night Jesus is with them, as he prepares them finally one more time for him to go away, notice what he says to them in the middle of that incredible discourse. John 13, 14, 15, 16, and in 17 his great high priest prayer. But in John 13, 14, 15, and 16, all these amazing principles about going forward as church. Look what he says at verse 27. Of John 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. And it's a recurring theme. I just told you in John 16. It's the last thing he mentions again. is I give you peace. And the peace in John 14 is not shalom. It's spiritual peace. You and your God. And you and each other. So I want you to notice this peace. The first thing I want you to notice about it, It's Jesus' legacy. This is our inheritance. This is what we have. There's so many people that preach that being a Christian about what physical material and a physical health sense. And you're so miss messing that's your fault. What Jesus is saying is, I give you something you can't buy. I give you something you can't get anywhere else. See that in a moment. This is my legacy. This will be your inheritance forever. More valuable than anything you will ever touch or encounter on this earth. I'm going to give you peace. It's your legacy. It's yours. But that's why it's so important. That's what we share. That's what we pass on. That's what we want other people to know, that God offers you, and you get it where else. Every day, if you turn on television, you get on the internet, or you listen to constantly somewhere in our world, they're talking about what? How can we find peace? How can we find peace here? How can we peace even in our city? How can we come to peace over this? How can we come to an agreement over this? Jesus said, I'll give you at crisp. What do we sing about on earth? The only place you can get it in that little bay, in that manger. Peace on earth. To men of will. You come to him, you get peace. You reject it, you'll have conflict. It's still true. Will never change. He is the prince. Peace. Our inheritance. But notice, it's also his gift to us. My peace I give to you. My peace. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't go get it somewhere else. You're not gonna work it up into an emotional frenzy. Suddenly you'll have peace. You can't get it from a drug. You can't get it place else. I give it to you. For God so loved the world that He He gave the unique Son of God. You trust Him? You know what the beauty of that is? It doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter how much money you have, power you have, how much authority you have, how many bow down to you. Really, doesn't matter. The only place, the only place, any human being can find peace, bowing. That's why Philippians says, "Every knee, every knee." By the way, I I don't know much, but every means every. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess or agree that he is Lord. Some will do it in this life. Some will do it in the next life. But guess what? How many knees are going? Every single one will bow because Christ will acknowledge his God. So here's what he says. I'm humble. I'm going to die. I'm telling you, I'm coming back. Here's what I'm going to give to you. With that for a moment, it's a gift. The third, it's unique. Everything we've been talking about, it's unique. It's my peace. You can't get it from anybody else. But notice how he amplifies that. Not as the world gives. Again, we talk about it all the time. People try to find all kinds of ways in this world, in relationships, to find peace. He said, I'm going to give you a peace. You can't get anywhere else, and it's unique. The world can't give it to you. You can't find it anywhere except in my presence. That's it. Unique. And any he comforts Let not your heart trouble. Those people that were in that room, as he speaks these words, peace to you, people that were in the upper room discourse, he says these words. When he said peace, both situations begin with, and one begins with, let not your heart be troubled. And then this encounter on that Sunday night, they were hiding because they were afraid, they were doubting, they thought they were seeing a ghost, they were confused, embarrassed, guilty. All the things we talked about, what did they need more than anything else? They needed to comfort. They needed to know it's going to be all right. Jesus said, I'm going to give Let not your heart be troubled. John 14 says, let not your heart be troubled. When God believe also, I go to my Father. Get your place ready. I'm coming back. If I go, I will come back. Where I am, there you may be also. Promise of Jesus so we could be at peace because we have peace in through him. No other place. No other place. He comforts. In that same room where he said these words in John 14, several times in that same discourse, Jesus says, I'm going to send you comforter, the Holy Spirit. The comfort, that's what it literally in Greek, the periclete. One comes alongside to help, time, need. Said, I'm going to see that was just like me. In other words, I'm the second person Trinity. I'm going to send you third person. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He'll be with you like I've been, and he'll be in you. 2,000 years later, where's the Holy Spirit? Right here. He's in this nasty old former grocery groceries with us in your heart. Where two or three of us are gathered, he's in our midst. He's there convicting, lead, pushing us to church. Jesus said, I'm going to send you. And by the way, he also said that Holy Spirit will remind you what I've taught you and all that I've taught you that the other call disciples, the purpose of the church. And then the last thing is that it conquers fear. Last thing he says, that neither be afraid. We started out today looking at them and said they were what? Afraid. They were afraid of the Jews. Jesus shows up in their midst and says, don't be afraid. Romans 5.1 on your outline says this. Therefore. Having been justified by faith, and that means born again, saved. Having been justified by faith, we have, notice the next phrase. Matter of fact, I'd like us all to say it together. We have peace with God. Please circle, highlight, tattoo person next to you, I don't care. The word with, with. You have peace with God, where? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. No other place, no other place. I, I don't want you to miss that. This is the eternal peace you get. You were in rebellion against God. We all were, the entire human race, because of Adam. We were in rebellion against God. We are born sin nature. Jesus comes and dies and takes the penalty of that on himself. When you're justified by faith, trusting in Christ, you're born again. God declares you righteous. No longer his enemy, now his child because of Jesus. Not because of you, because of Jesus. What he did at Calvary and by rise to the dead. That's why Easter, he did not rise to the dead. That verse is not true. You can't have peace, but he did rise. That's why what he was saying to them in that room is, don't be afraid. Don't let your heart be troubled. I'm here. Touch me. I've risen from the dead. It's eternal peace. It's eternal peace. But it's also present right now on your handout, Philippians 4. The peace of God. Circle the little word of. If you have peace with God, eternally you are his. But you also have the peace of God right now. It's present right now. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. It will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You get peace with God. You take the peace of God. And then you live the Christian life. It's present right now. Right now. Here's the idea. You're saved and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in your life. Put you at peace God. Put you at peace with other people. It puts you at peace with self. You don't have to live in the guilt of your sin. Let it go. Be at peace with God, peace with yourself, with others, and peace with the world. I'm not worried if North Korea gets a nuclear weapon. I'm not worried about crazy terrorists. I'm not worried about Putin. I'm not worried about our nation, our leaders. I don't like it, but I know my God. Bigger universe. He spoke it into existence. Handle a rush thug. He's bigger. So I'm at peace. Because what's the worst you can do to me? Kill me? Thank you. I'm going to paradise. F- especially just on a very practical, in your own heart, when you're born again, God be righteous. And the Bible says, so uh, I, I remember this from 1970, The guy shared it with me. The Bible says, he remembered no more and moves it as far as the east. Let it go. If you're dwelling on things that happened past, God's Why? Why? Let it go. Now, for somebody you need to go through and make right, that's a difference. But don't let Satan beat you up on something that's already paid. Forget it. Christians don't live in the past. We live in the present, knowing in the future. We're excited about life right now. And then the last thing I want you to notice is a response. Verse 20 said they had joy. But then I want us for just a second as we wrap up to focus on our little buddy Thomas, who I think has gotten a bad rap. Notice verse 28. 28. Thomas answered after Jesus said, Here, Thomas. Touch my side. Your hand. Notice he doesn't do that. You see that? Look at verse 28. Jesus said, go ahead. You can touch. Look at verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Now Jesus, verse 29 said, you had to see to believe. Blessed don't have to be better if you didn't lay out. He met him where he was, didn't he? You haven't seen Jesus. I think you haven't. And you trusted born again. But I want you to notice what Thomas said. Verse 28. My Lord and my God. I want to read you a quote written in 1943 by a lady named Dorothy Sayers. What she was doing was creating dramatic reading of the gospel, teaching people how to express what's said in drama. And she came to Thomas, and here's what she said about this Greek quote: "It is unexpected and extraordinarily convincing that the one." absolutely unequivocal statement in the whole gospel of the divinity of Jesus should come from Doubting Thomas. It's the only place where the word God is used of him without qualification of any kind. And it's the most unambiguous form of words, not merely theos, but theos with the definite article. Now, in other words, that means in Greek, the Greek definite article is calling Jehovah Elohim, the only one and be God. And this must be said, not ecstatically, in other words, he's not screaming it out, Or with a cry of astonishment, but with flat conviction, as of one acknowledging evidence. Two plus two equals four. The sun is in the sky. It's your God. That's what He got it. He got it. What Jesus wants me and you to understand with God, be yourself with others and go tell about the man, because that's all about. During the first Gulf War, there was a lady named Ruth Dillow, and she got a letter from the Pentagon. Her son was in the military, and she got a letter from the Pentagon said her son had had, uh, been killed, stepped on a mine and killed. She said, all I could do three days, three days cry, we mourn a son. Three days later, I got a phone call. And all I heard on the other end was this. They had gotten the name, Mom, it's me. She said, I was cartwheels. So we followed that idiot. He wasn't who he said he was. You're God. The Bible called of reconciliation. That's why Easter is three days. We thought it was all peace. I'm here. And when you read the book of Acts, they got it. Turned the world upside. Jesus is back. I don't know back, but in the interim, he says to us, if you're feeling guilty self, selfless, it happened in the past. If you've never been saved, if you are saved, Lord, we thank you that Jesus did rise from the dead. We don't celebrate it on time of year. We celebrate it every waking moment. He rose from the dead. So I have life. I have peace. I'm at peace with you. I'm at peace with others. I'm at peace with self. I'm at the circumstance of the world because he just rose from the dead. I pray we would have honest, sincere doubts that lead us to seek truth. And then once we believe the evidence, live, share the evidence that So, Lord, if there's somebody here who's not born again, maybe they have honest. They would ask the CG, surrender to him, follow him. For all of us who are Christians, sincerely, honestly, live at peace.